0: We're going to read our text now from the second chapter of Nehemiah. We want to be reminded every time we handle the word of God that this is not the word of men. It's the word of the living God preserved down through the ages for us. And it speaks to us today by the power of God's spirit at work within us. Let's pray for a moment. Father, We pray for the reading of your word, that you'd be pleased to open it to our hearts and minds, that you would speak to us today, that you would speak to us about those things that need our attention. And we pray, Father, for the proclamation of your word, that you would forgive the sins of the teacher, for they are many, but that you would be pleased by the power of your spirit to speak powerfully to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And here ends the reading of God's word and may his name ever be praised. Amen. Some years ago when I was still working for the National Religious Broadcasters, I was traveling in Australia And I was struck by a newspaper headline that I saw. The story told of a woman mistakenly deported from Australia to the Philippines. There she was taken in by Roman Catholic nuns who cared for her and let her live among them at a hospice home that they operated During her four years at the hospice, her family did not know where she was and thought she had died. As you might imagine, they were heartbroken. The newspaper headline told her story. Wrongfully deported woman found living among the dying. Wrongfully deported woman found living among the dying. Now, the story went on to recount the joy of being reunited with her family and, of course, the red faces on Australian officials who could not either explain her deportation nor why she couldn't be found for four years. But it was the headline that stuck with me then and it still resonates with me today. Living among the dying. This is not just the story of this Australian woman. In many ways, it's our story, too, that headline. This woman lived among the dying, and God blessed the nuns that took her in. But we also live among the dying. We live in a culture that celebrates death, with many ready to step into a Christless eternity. And so also with the Jews of Nehemiah's time, at least those living in exile in Persia, living in a pagan culture that was very much a culture of death. They struggled mightily to maintain their identity as the people of God. For 70 years, the Jews languished in captivity, dreaming of Jerusalem, their home. And during this time, most of the adults who were carried off into captivity had died. And there were only a few remaining who had a memory of the city of the great king. God promised 70 years of captivity through the prophet Jeremiah. But when the time came, the Babylonians, the Persians, refused to let them go. But God raised up Cyrus, The Persian who conquered Babylon, and in the first year of his reign, giving credit to God Almighty, we might add, Cyrus gave the Jews permission to return home and to rebuild their temple, thus fulfilling the prophecy and the promise of God. And it's nearly 100 years later that we find our text where Nehemiah, a Jew, is serving as cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes. Now, the term cupbearer has sort of a lowly sound uh, to the untrained ear, as in, here, take this to the king. But the cupbearer was actually a very high-ranking official in Persian Persian government and society. The cupbearer not only had authority to protect the king, as Dr. Sam said, from being poisoned, the cupbearer had authority over the king's entire household. He was a very, very high-ranking official. In chapter 1 of Nehemiah, which we've not read but referred to, Nehemiah learns from those returning from Judah about the desperate strait of the people of God back in Judea, that they were living in great distress and living in great shame, and that the walls of the city had been broken down and the temple had been, while it had been partially rebuilt, those who saw the rebuilt temple when they first laid eyes on it cried because it it did not even begin to compare to the glory of Solomon's temple. But here we arrive, and here we see Nehemiah hearing this terrible news and being struck to his heart by it, committing himself to a period of mourning and fasting and praying before God, before his planned encounter with the king. And from this, we derive our first principle from the text, and that is that prayer should always precede our work. Prayer should always precede our work, especially when we undertake things for the glory of God, but also in everyday things as well. In James chapter 4, the apostle writes, "'You do not have because you do not ask.'" sometimes we don't have because we don't stop to ask God for it. We see this clearly in the life of Jesus who prayed to the Father about everything he did. Jesus, who was equal with the Father, undivided, one with the Father, still prayed to him about everything because he submitted himself to his Father's will. Well, how is it with you? And with me, do you lay your plans consistently before the Lord in prayer? Are you even now in the midst of contemplating some new effort, some new change, some new direction or thing that you need the blessing of God for? The scripture says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Prayer must always precede our work. So Nehemiah not only mourned the condition of Jerusalem, he planned to do something about it. Yet wanting to be certain, he committed his plans to the Lord and he fasted and he prayed to the God of heaven that he might have some sense of understanding that this was in fact the Lord's will. And then the text that we read in chapter two is the culmination of this planning and prayer. He is called to bring the king's wine to him and the king notices that Nehemiah's countenance is sad and we know the rest of that encounter. There is something really interesting here that I want to call your attention, though, too. And that is the reference, the parenthetical reference in the text to the fact that the queen was sitting beside him. Verse six reads, and the king said to me, and then parenthesis, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? This is very unusual because this parenthetical reference is like hands waving at us to divert our attention to the queen. Why else would it be there? It's also unusual because historians tell us that Persian kings generally dined alone, especially at state events. So this was most likely a private dinner, And interestingly, this queen was most likely Queen Esther. Yes, the same Esther about whom Mordecai said, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The account of the book of Esther, I hope you may not know, predates Nehemiah in the time frame. And so, we believe that this was Esther because the Jewish historian, historian rather, uh, Josephus, in his narrative, identifies King Azuerus as Artaxerxes. It was just another name for Artaxerxes. So knowing Esther's story and what she had gone through to become queen and that she was herself a Jew, she must have had an intense interest in Nehemiah's request and perhaps was even influential in the response. And when the king does agree to Nehemiah's petition to rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah then goes on to make very specific requests of the king, showing that he had thought this out, that he had planned this. He had given a great deal of thought as to how this could be accomplished, the rebuilding of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. The text says... If the Nehemiah said, "If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, so that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah," and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house I shall occupy, and then this, and the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. And here is our second principle the Lord is looking, looking over the face of the earth for those he can bless, those whose hearts are his. Now, how do we know that the Lord is looking for an opportunity to bless D.M.I.? How do we know that this principle is true? We find it in 2 Chronicles 16. And I want you to listen to this very carefully because this principle is for everyone in the sound of my voice. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support To those whose heart is blameless toward Him. The eyes of the Lord scan the whole earth, looking for someone that God can bless and give strong support because their heart is blameless. Dear friends, this promise is not only for the mighty men of God and the great women uh, of the scriptures that God used, it's for us. It's for us. Nehemiah was burdened and he prayed and he planned all of these things even before he made his request of the king, yet he was trusting in God alone to support him. And he was trusting that the Lord would be ready to show favor to him, to this man whose heart was blameless toward God. Nehemiah went on to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. He restored worship in the temple of God. He restored the reading of the law. He he relieved the oppression of the poor in Jerusalem. And he led the people of God to renew their covenant obligations before God. God indeed gave Nehemiah strong support. But how can it be said that Nehemiah was blameless before God? Wasn't Nehemiah just a sinner like the rest of us? Well, this raises a question that many have asked down through the church age. Perhaps it's a question you may have asked. How is it that people born before Christ are saved? How is it that people who are born before Christ are saved? are saved. As one skeptic put it, you mean to tell me that God will send people to hell simply for not believing in a Christ they never even heard of? Well, no. God will not send people to hell for not believing in a Christ they never heard of. Everyone who ends up in that awful place where there is everlasting darkness and eternal separation from God, will end up there for one reason only, because of their own sin. That is what takes people to hell. God, in his mercy and love, sent his beloved son to rescue those whom he had chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That would include the Old Testament and the New Testament era. But that still leaves the question, what about those born before Christ? And this leads us to our third principle. Everyone who receives God's salvation receives it the same way. Everyone who receives God's salvation receives it the same way. We receive it by believing that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and by trusting that his atoning death and bodily resurrection satisfied the wrath of God against our own sins. This is how everyone receives the salvation of God of God. As Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Nehemiah trusted in Christ also. Well, how can that be true? He did so by looking forward in time to, to the coming long-promised Messiah, a coming repeatedly foretold by the prophets and throughout the, the Old Testament scriptures. And I want you to listen to the words of Isaiah 53, words given by the Spirit of God Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearer silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. These words were written 700 years before Christ's passion. By these prophecies and many other New Testament prophecies, many were saved before Christ came by looking forward to his coming looking forward to the covenant promises of God and what Messiah would do when he came to take away the sins of the people. Abraham is the prototype of the Old Testament believer, and the scripture says of him that he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Others were saved, not many years before Christ came as Nehemiah, but they were saved when Christ walked in their midst. Can you imagine Jesus walking in their midst? And yet not everyone was saved who saw him, but those who trusted in him by faith. And in these latter days, we are saved. Nehemiah was saved by looking forward. We're saved by looking backward in time to what Christ has already done. We look backward to a hill far away where stood an old rugged cross. We trust in the Messiah who has come and calls us to repent and to believe. Well, how about you? Have you trusted in him who set his face as flint toward Jerusalem for you? Have you recognized that you are a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure? Dear friends, the gates of hell will receive everyone who dies in their sins. But I say to you today that the gates of heaven are open wide for all who will repent and believe the gospel. And here is the promise of God to those who come to him by faith. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will become white as snow. Wherever you are today, if the Lord is calling you, if the Lord is stirring your heart, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge my sin before you, and I acknowledge that I deserve nothing from you. But in your great love, you sent Jesus, who suffered and died and paid the penalty for my sins, and rose again, and even now is sitting at your right hand, making intercession for me. Father, I receive Christ as my Savior. And I ask you to receive me as a child of the living God by faith in Jesus Christ, because I pray in his name. And Father, for those who have responded by faith, we pray that your spirit would be their strength and their shield, that you would guide them in paths of righteousness for the glory and honor of your own great name. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.